Uh, again, a delight to be with you. I'm always glad to be back in California. We still count it as home uh, because this is really where our kids were raised and uh, very much of what God has done in my life as I pastored in California, that deposit continues to be at work as I now uh, spend a good bit of my life, probably 35, 40 trips a year, ministering to pastors, pastors, conferences, and churches, and it's always a, a joy to be back here anytime we can. Our ministry is called Strategic Renewal. You see a slide that kind of tells you a little bit about where we are, who we are. You can find us on the internet, uh, sign up for some regular e-devotions once a week, uh, find prayer tools, etc. And most of all, hope you remember to pray for us because uh, I had a distinctive sense when I left the senior pastor to do this full time, it really ticked the devil off. You know, he, he doesn't really like us doing a whole lot about prayer and uh, yet that's why we do what we do, right? We're in a spiritual battle and one well worth fighting. Our family uh, is, well, our kids were raised here and everywhere I go, I like you to see them. So here they are. This is our gang. Uh, we've added one family member, and that's a, a husband for my daughter there in the middle, uh, Heather. Uh, she's a hairdresser. I'm not her main customer, but she does a really good job. Uh, our boys are on the outside, uh, and their wives and their little girls. Both, uh, well, actually, my wife, of course, in the middle. Uh, we've been married 31 years. She doesn't even look like she's 31. Uh, living with me has helped keep her really young and vibrant. Uh, uh, she just has good skin. Uh, but she's a pastor's daughter. My boys both married pastor's daughters. So we have a little pastoral inbreeding going on. Um, but the kids are turning out normal so far, and we're grateful for that. Um, speaking of the kids, my favorite members of the family, I must confess, are uh, Annie Renee and Taylor Grace. And that was back around Thanksgiving time, so they've grown even more talking and walking and saying poppy and all that stuff, you know. But uh, And we have two more on their way in December and then in February. Now I look way too young to be a grandpa, but it happens. So uh, anyway, that's them. Thanks for uh, your prayers for them as well. They're a big part of my life and family. Our boys actually work for our ministry uh, full-time, and it's a joy to be serving the Lord together. Well, you've been in the book of Isaiah. I happened to slip in on a service in January and was so taken by, uh, again, my dear friend and brother Lance and his passion uh, as it just bleeds out through the Word of God, particularly this year around the theme of awakening. And as I thought about preaching today, there's a lot of things we could say. He wanted me to kind of focus on prayer, but my heart just kept coming back to that theme, awakening, awakening, awakening. As I travel and speak, I have the privilege of being in a lot of conferences that deal with awakening and revival. Uh, Many of those messages, of course, uh, are outstanding. Uh, A lot of them from the Old Testament, which has some great stuff to uh, help us and teach us. But my heart has been drawn in recent days to an Old, I'm sorry, to a New Testament picture of awakening uh, from the standpoint of how God has worked in His church to create awakening. And we're going to turn there uh, in just a moment. Uh, you know, the terms revival and awakening can be misunderstood, I think, a lot of times. When I was a kid, revival really was an orange banner that we hung out in front of the church. Revival this week. And one way or the other that week, we were going to work something up so our banner didn't lie, you know, and that was kind of how it worked. Some of you think of revival, you think of people rolling in the aisle and foaming at the mouth. Uh, you know, that's rabies. If you see that happening, call a doctor. But uh, we have a lot of misconceptions. Re- revival is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit producing supernatural results for the advancement of the gospel. And historically, when there's been a revival among God's people, it overflows into an awakening in the culture. Even secular sociologists agree that the things that have most dramatically improved uh, the the uh, culture and the social advancements of our society have been the awakenings, the spiritual awakenings that impacted our country. And there's never been a revival in church history that did not begin in movements of united prayer. 
So I believe that uh, talk about prayer, commitment to prayer, fresh desire to pray together is at the core of what God wants to do. The great uh, commentator uh, Matthew Henry said that whenever God prepares to pour out a great mercy upon his people, that was his terminology for revival, he always begins by putting them on their knees. And so when I see these stirrings, I just begin to wonder, is something sovereign beginning to happen? And I think as the culture gets darker, the Lord is going to wake us up and stir us to experience things that only he can give us. And that really is why uh, seven years ago I left the security of the pastorate, went full-time in this ministry. I always say I jumped off the cliff without a parachute, and the Lord caught me, and uh, went from being a senior pastor to a full-time spiritual pyromaniac. And that's really uh, what it's all about. The vision that wakes me up every day, don't write it down, your pen will smoke, but this is it, just listen. It's a vision for pastor-led, local church-oriented movements of Christ-exalting, worship-based prayer, leading to a full-scale revival, supernatural evangelism, and cultural transformation. So uh, thank you for a woo out there, a little laughter. Uh, John Maxwell says if they don't laugh, it's not big enough, and I can't think of anything bigger than that. So it's that pastors just like yours and just like those I'm meeting all around the country find a fresh desire to make their church a house of prayer. Not some big natural organizational revival thing, just it begins to happen in churches. And it's not just grocery list praying anymore. It's a worship-based seeking of God's face and not just his hand. If my people are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and uh, turn from their evil ways and seek my hand. No, seek my face, God says. Seek my face. Then will I hear from heaven. And that, I believe, could lead to a full-scale revival. We don't make revival happen. We just set our sails so that when the wind blows, we can catch it. And that leads to what I call supernatural evangelism because the great movements of evangelism have occurred not because we wrote new curriculum, but because the church was revived. 150 years ago in that last great revival, a million people came to Christ in America in less than one year in a smaller population base because that's just what happens. And then leading to cultural transformation, a transformation of our culture. And I believe that the single great need in our nation today is Jesus Christ living through a revived church. And everything could change when that happens. Um, you know, I uh, often tell people, you know, as dark as it is out there, we don't really have a darkness problem. We have a light problem, right? Because light always penetrates darkness. And I often say the problem out there isn't Osama, Obama, or your mama. You know, you can blame it on whoever you want. It's, you know, it's it's the terrorists. That's the problem. Or it's the politicians. Doesn't matter what party, you know, what their name is. Or my mama dropped me on the head when I was a kid. That's no. It's that we need a revival. And if that begins to occur, everything's going to change because that is the sufficiency and power of the Spirit of God and the Word of God working through the people of God for the glory of God. Perhaps you've seen the book by um, John Dickerson. He's a pastor in uh, Arizona, an award-winning, uh, award-winning writer. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. It's a good wake-up call as we prepare to look at this text. In his book, he has cited lots of very specific research to indicate several things that I think should rivet us. Number one, that the giving base for American evangelicalism will erode over the next few decades. It's already beginning to happen. Some say up to 50%. Evangelicalism is losing 2.6 million people per decade. 
You say, well, you know, church, some churches are growing. Yes, they are. But by and large, it's kind of recycling the saints. But overall, we're losing 2.6 million every 10 years. The actual percentage of true evangelicals based on five specific studies is not what we say, you know, yeah, I'm born again. But people who really live an evangelical lifestyle is somewhere between 6 and 9% of the American population. It's not what we thought it was, is it? We're not winning new believers fast enough, he says, to keep up with brisk population growth. Militant antagonism in the host culture here in America against evangelicals is increasing rapidly. And you know that. It's almost become popular to be anti-religion, anti-evangelical. The struggling evangelical church is divided from within, which is weakening our influence. By the way, I'm so thrilled to hear stories about what God's doing in this area, to call pastors to begin to pray together and work together and build each other up. Did you know that in the last decade, the only group that grew in every U.S. state was people saying they have no religion? And so this is a day and age in which our hearts should be burdened, but I'm not a pessimist. My elders at Arcade used to say, Daniel, you know, you're the kind of guy you could find a pile of manure in the driveway and you'd be digging through it saying there's got to be a pony in here somewhere, right? <laughs> and uh, so I believe that. And I believe that hope springs from the promises and stories of God's Word. So to that, in turn to me to Acts chapter 6, if you will. Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. Now, I like to stand and honor God and His Word. And now that you've settled in for a good Sunday morning nap, I'm going to disrupt you and uh, ask you if you would to stand with me as I read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And here's what it says. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint over this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicotine, and Timon, and Parmesan, and Nicholas. That was kind of close anyway. A proselyte of Antioch. And these they said before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, Lord, now open our hearts and let us believe once again in the power of all that you want to do in us and through us for your glory and the advancement of your son's gospel, we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Imagining opening the Sacramento Bee tomorrow morning and the lead story says Islamic mullahs all across the state of California leave their mosques in order to plant Christian churches after concluding that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only answer for the need of humankind. Next day, the paper comes out. Buddhist priests throughout North, uh, Northern California leave their temples in order to attend Christian seminaries and eventually become pastors. You're thinking, wow, what's going on? Next day, a headline comes out. Bill Maher leaves HBO. Decides to start a Christian network to propagate the gospel after apologizing to Christians around the world and claiming Jesus as a Savior and Lord. Wow, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Bible sales hit, hit record numbers. Stores cannot keep up with the demand. 
Another story, adult bookstores, X-rated Internet sites see unprecedented drop in activity. Many close down for lack of customers. Churches in the region swell, starting services seven days a week in response to the crowds. Wouldn't that be something? How many believe that could happen? Yeah, you almost, I don't know, I'm kind of hoping, right? Wow. It can. And in essence, it did. We're going to come full circle at the end of our message to see this New Testament account, which really parallels very much the headlines that I just read. As we look through the text today, we're going to see four things, just points to hang our thoughts on. You don't have to write them down. But we're going to see, first of all, a crisis that promoted clarity about the things that really mattered in the life of the church. Then we're going to see a core of leaders that led with conviction. We'll unpack that. We're going to see a committee. I don't like that word, but we'll still, it's, it's the right word. A committee, these seven, about standing character who, who rose to the occasion and made a profound difference. And then we're going to see the conclusion of the story that inspires confidence in our own hearts about what God could do. So let's begin by looking at the crisis that promoted clarity in verse 1. It says, now in these days, we don't know when that is. That's a non-specific time marker. Some say it's a few weeks after Pentecost, maybe months after Pentecost. But whenever it happened, the disciples were increasing in number. Uh, the New King James says they began to multiply. It's a fascinating word because for five chapters, the church has been adding thousands daily. Uh, commentators believe the church in Jerusalem was probably about 20,000 people by now. When you do the math and you add the women and the children, uh, you realize that this was a, a significant work that was going on. And by the way, God can bring revival in the midst of blessing. He can bring it in the midst of, of a crisis. Uh, but they are certainly alive. There is vive right now, isn't there? But there's about to be a reviving. And we're going to see how that all unfolds and the clarity that they had that brought it to this point. Now, in the midst of this blessing, there's spiritual counterattack, isn't there? Always that case in Acts. The church grows, they pray, the gospel goes forward, the enemy counterattacks in chapter 4 with persecution, in chapter 5 with corruption, Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit, again in chapter 5 with persecution, and now in chapter 6, it's really the idea of division and distraction. And some of you, you're wondering, what's going on in my life? I was making such great progress, and now suddenly the wheels are falling off. I'll tell you what's going on. This is a spiritual battle. And every advancement you make, the enemy's trying to undermine that advancement. I always say, the devil is always trying to put us in a diabolical check if you play chess, right? But Jesus is always ready and willing and able to deliver a divine checkmate. And we are trusting him for that, and you see that happening here. In this case, there is a stirring up of a spirit of complaint by the Hellenists, who are the Greek-speaking Jews, against the Hebrews, who are the Hebrew-speaking Jews. You say, well, what's happening? Well, in all likelihood, these Greek-speaking Jews came into the church at Pentecost. They had come for the Feast of Pentecost, came to Christ, stuck around, became a part of the church, and and this nice little cozy widow-feeding program began to have the wheels fall off. There's so many now, they can't keep up, and unintentionally, but nonetheless in reality, some of them are being neglected. The people kind of think, well, let's let the leaders fix it. That was not necessarily the answer in this case. And so the leaders say this, they say, uh, they they pulled everyone together, all the disciples, and we see now uh, this 
core of leadership that led with a strong conviction, beginning in verse 2. The core that led with strong conviction. Uh, they called the number of disciples together. They said, hey, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Both are significant. Uh, what could be closer to God's heart than feeding widows, right? But it's not right that we particularly should give up the priority of what God has uniquely called us to do to benefit you and advance the work in order to take care of this. So you fix it. Wow. That's a thought. So you find 12 men, and they give them the qualifications, who we will assign to put in charge of this ministry. But look with me, if you will, at verse 4. They said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You heard Russ say, I direct a national fellowship called the 6-4 Fellowship. Think, What's that? Well, it comes from this verse, prayer and the ministry of the word. Pastors, hundreds of pastors now beginning to join this movement, saying we've got to get back to prayer and the ministry of the word. Uh, there's all kinds of other bells and whistles, but if we don't do this, we've missed our calling. And that's a good sign of hope, isn't it? I was speaking in Virginia a few years ago, and a pastor got up at the end of the service, and the Lord was really stirring in his heart, and I'll never forget what he said. He asked his church to pray for him. He says, because the devil is always launching weapons of mass distraction on my life. Wow. I'm worried about the mass destruction weapons, but the mass distraction... That's what gets me each and every day. And I tell pastors often, I tell my own heart often, you know, the devil doesn't have to destroy us. All he has to do is distract us. And by distracting us, he dilutes us. And in diluting us, he discourages us. And ultimately, in our discouragement, he will destroy us. And so it requires clear focus. These leaders had clear conviction. Uh, their secondary conviction, which we'll get to in a minute, was, was pretty obvious here. The feeling that, you know, this is God's church, and these are his people, and actually this is his problem. So he's going to raise up people to handle this, and these people will be fully sufficient to solve the problem better than we could and lead us to a solution that will advance the mission. It's a great place to be, isn't it? But their primary conviction in this particular case was that not all priorities are created equal. Not all leadership priorities are created equal. And they have three in this text. You see them in Acts chapter 6. Obviously, the preaching is referenced previously. But as they describe it now, they say this. In verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then, of course, the third one is we're going to deploy others to take on responsibility. Boy, how the enemy wants to distract us away from the things that really matter the most. You say, well, that's not relevant to me, but it really is. You think of Martha and Mary's story. You remember that? Martha's so busy doing things for Jesus. You think, oh, what a good servant of the Lord. And Mary's sitting at his feet hearing his word. And finally, Jesus says to Martha, take a chill pill. That's the original Greek. Take a chill pill, Martha. You are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary. Really, only one. She says, what? Look at Mary. She's chosen the best part. And it won't be taken away from her. His point is, not everything's of equal value and priorities need to be accomplished in order. I always say prayer's not the only thing we do, it just has to be the first thing we do. And he said of Mary, she has made the best first choice and it now will cause everything she does to be marked by eternity's blessing compared to just being an activist for Jesus, right? But going back to Acts 6, I realize how powerful these priorities are. Even in light of a, an Old Testament parallel story, if you think of the Old Testament, those of you who studied it much, and you think of a leader who hits a crisis and he's overwhelmed, he's got to make some priority choices, you probably think of Moses, right? 
And you remember a time in Exodus 18, he's judging way too many people. And his father-in-law, Jethro, uh, by the way, that's the number one baby name in California right now, Jethro. No, it's not. I'm just seeing if you're listening. All right, so Jethro. And Jethro says to him, Moses, stop it. You're going to burn out. You're not going to be able to be effective. And so you've got to change things. So give me your attention. Do what I say. And he says, the Lord will be with you. You will know God's blessing and presence if you'll do this. So if I asked you, what did Jethro tell him to do? 99.9% of you would say what? Delegate, right? Or appoint other judges. You know, that was the third thing Jethro told him to do. He says, Moses, listen now. Here's what you do. Number one, Exodus 18, 19. You represent the people before God. Secondly, you teach them the statutes of the, of the Lord. Thirdly, you delegate to other judges. Now, here's what's just fascinating to me, that in both the book of Acts, chapter 6, and Exodus 18, the salient examples of a leadership crisis and having to make hard choices, the same three priorities are listed in the same order. Prayer, the word, and then mobilizing others or delegating to others to do work. Wow. How powerful is that? And I think for each and every one of us, uh, we need to pray for God to help our leaders preserve that and keep them free to do that instead of burdening them to solve every problem that, in fact, as we'll see, the Holy Spirit is sufficient to help us solve through his word and by his power. And we need to help them. Why did they do that, by the way? You wonder, why was prayer such a big deal in the early church? And, and why, I think, of these mission teams are going to go to places where these people are serious about prayer. They have nothing, but they have everything because they pray. Why is it so important, just so we can all feel godly, you know, and walk around with our prayer robes and our incense and glow in the dark and drip Shekinah juice and say, oh, look at me. No. Why was prayer so vital? Here's why. Because they actually believed, catch this, that the Holy Spirit was the how-to. The Holy Spirit is actually the how-to. That's why they prayed. My problem, maybe yours is as well, I think to myself, well, now, you know, why should I pray for an hour when I can Google this in five seconds, you know? And I can get some expert's idea, you know, or go look it up in a book or call some wise guy. And those are all fine and good. But I want to tell you, friends, we know this in our hearts. You can pile all the wise guys, all the books, all the search engines, all the methodologies on one side compared to the other side where you have the person, power, and presence of the Holy Spirit. And that loses every time and he wins. That's why Jesus said, let him who has ears hear what the experts are saying to the church. No, what? The Holy Spirit. That's why they prayed. One last thing. I, I just got to add this. In the language of the text, this is actually a reference to them experiencing this together. It's not the idea that we're all going to have our private prayer lives and we're all going to have private Bible study. It's that this is going to be the essence of how we do ministry and how we lead. We're going to pray together. And I would just suggest to you that we need a reawakening of the need of community when it comes to prayer. I know a lot of us stayed away from prayer because it's boring or people gossip, you know. And I have long recollections of, of prayer being very boring when I was a kid. Uh, I had a drug problem when I was a child related to prayer, and that was that my parents drug me to the old-fashioned Wednesday night prayer meeting every week, and that thing was so painful. But, but when we pray biblically, when we pray from the Word, when we worship God, God does something profound. This week I was uh, teaching a seminary class all week long on prayer, and, and there were 31 students, 23 of whom were from South Korea. I want to sit on the front row and tell them to teach, you know. They've had some amazing experiences there. But very often these South Korean students will come up to the American students and say, 
Why do you pray by yourself? That just makes our brain hurt. It's so, what do you mean? So I'm supposed to, no, 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 it's not. Why do you pray by yourself? Of course, in Korea, they've had marvelous movements of the spirit and this, this, this context of prayer. Uh, Gene Getz, a renowned professor from Dallas Seminary, makes the point in one of his books. He says, I'm so grateful for all that we taught about personal and private prayer. But he says, why have we neglected the primary New Testament emphasis on praying together? He says, I believe the reason is because our culture is marked by, by rugged individualism. That is the hallmark of Western society. We think in terms of I, my, and me rather than we, our, and us. He says, what we actually do, we, we reinterpret those verses based upon our cultural bias. I have reached the age, as you can tell, obviously, of balding, bifocals, bulging, and bunions. Uh, that's the old man's version of head, shoulders, knees, and toes, right? So, uh, so I'm always wearing these glasses. Uh, very typical. I'll lay down at night. Oop, forgot to take my glasses off. You know, get up in the morning. First thing I'm looking for is my glasses. I'm always seeing the world, as I'm doing right now, through a lens. You know, we see the Bible through a lens sometimes, and Getz says it's a lens of individualism. What we don't realize is that the commands to pray are using plural language in the very New Testament language itself. But also, think about this. The only way to receive God's word before the advent and dis- the advent of the printing press and the distribution of printed Bibles was how? Together, wasn't it? And so when the passage came uh, from Paul to the Thessalonian church, for example, pray without ceasing. Uh, we read that in my Bible, and I say, I should always have an attitude of prayer, and by the way, you should. But here's what the Thessalonians heard. You know, they didn't stop by Kinko's Thessalonica before they got there, right? You just had to show up. And when that passage was read, here's what they heard. Y'all, uh, Southern Thessalonica, right? Or all y'all, don't stop praying together. And that's why there was such a spirit of prayer. And so may God stir within us to say, yeah, that's what they did. That's how the leaders, that's what Jesus said. My house will be a house of prayer. And you see these advancements. Uh, this morning at 7, I joined a group that prays every Sunday at 7 for the church. Now, I could have prayed in my hotel room. And I'll be honest with you, I would have dozed off, been distracted, checking Facebook, you know, Twitter feeds. And I call that prayer, right? But I come with them and we're all praying out of the word. And the Holy Spirit's praying something through them. And I stay engaged. My heart gets warmed. And, you know, we only learn to pray by praying. And the best way to learn to pray by praying is praying with others who, who through the help of the Holy Spirit, are building us up and encouraging us. And that's what these leaders experienced. Thirdly, we see a committee. Now, I know we define a committee as a group of the unwilling picked from the unfit to do the unnecessary, all right? That's, that's our definition of a committee. But this is really a working team with a clear assignment. The apostle said, so, in verse 3, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Verse 5 says, it pleased the whole multitude. And they picked these seven. Stephen, we remember, he was the first martyr, a great man of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. Philip, we know, he became known as Philip the Evangelist. He's the one that got translated after uh, baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch over to another place. Uh, I always wish I had that gift. I could have just kind of gone back home last night and beamed myself over uh, this morning, but i got to get on airplanes and so do you. So we know those two. The rest of them, we don't know. He's just seven common people. But here's what was uncommon about them, and that was their character. They were men of good reputation. Can you imagine out of 20,000 people, they say, pick seven? 
What? You know, we're going to do a lottery here? You know, this is again just their sense of the wisdom and direction of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how it worked, but the Spirit directed him to these seven men whose life, whose character, whose behavior exemplified the work of the gospel. And it says they were also full of the Holy Spirit. Now we all, as believers, have the Holy Spirit, but not all of us are equally controlled by the Holy Spirit, right? And so these men were so controlled by the Spirit of God that they stood out among thousands of people as examples who could be trusted to lead in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it also says they were what? They were full of wisdom. Wisdom is truth applied to life. And so their discernment, their decisions, their insight, their power from the Holy Spirit, their reputation was so salient that they were the ones who were selected. And I think uh, nothing's really changed, that when leaders are able to focus on the ultimate priorities, God's going to raise up other people who, by the way, have the same Holy Spirit in them that these seven did, who have access to the wisdom of God as they did, and now we actually have it, the fully uh, completed New Testament, and who can live lives of good reputation and do ministry. They had such a high view of the saints. Say, well, I'm just a layman. Yeah, I've heard that over the years of pastoral ministry. In fact, I quit calling our people layman. That's a common term. Layman, laywomen. Because somehow it's miscommunicating. They always took that as a command. Layman. He's laid there. That's all he did. Laywomen. He's laid there. And so I realized, well, no wonder they're laying around. I'm telling them to lay around. So I changed that. I began to call them saints. You know, that's the primary New Testament word to describe you. Do you know that saint? It means a holy one. That kind of elevates your sense of, wow, I can be a part of something special here. You sure can. In fact, turn to your neighbor. Just look at him. Say, Saint whatever. Just, you know, Saint Joe, Saint Bill. Yeah, just introduce. Hi, Saint uh, Sam. Kind of makes you feel good, doesn't it? I'm not just a layman. I'm a saint. Now, we're not going to make statues for everybody next week. Don't get your hopes up. But but here here's the deal. Instead of running to the leaders, tell them, you fix this, you design a program, you make this work. They say, no, no, the Holy Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom. Uh, God can make our lives exemplary lives, and we can carry forward the ministry. You've heard the old adage, so often the church is like an NFL football game, right? Um, you know, 22 men down on the field desperately in need of exercise. I'm sorry, desperately in need of rest. Sometimes they probably are in need of exercise, but desperately in need of rest, being cheered on by 70,000 people up in the stands, desperately in need of exercise, right? But here, everyone finds their part. And the church begins to function in the fullness and sufficiency of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And it pleased the multitude. And finally, we see what I call a conclusion in verse 7 now that, that inspires confidence. You remember those headlines? Let's revisit them from Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. It says, and the word of God continued to increase, or the word of God spread. I've often thought that's like the understatement of the book of Acts. I mean, like it hasn't been spreading already, but something because the word then attaches it to what just happened. Then, as a result, the word of God continued to spread. Now, church growth guys would look at this and say, surely there's ten key steps to having revival. You know, three formulas for a supernatural movement. No, it's all about culture. It's all about health. It's something very organic. 
leaders staying dialed in to what they know the Holy Spirit has called them to do and the power by which he wants them to do it. Individuals rising up and saying, yes, God's wisdom is sufficient. God's spirit is sufficient. We can live the kind of lives that can make a difference around here. And suddenly in that dynamic, a supernatural movement advances. The Word of God continued to increase. Now, when we see Word of God, we're thinking of 66 books of the Bible. Uh, there was no New Testament yet. And this is really, I think, a specific reference to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That good news of God's Word through Jesus is spreading. And it says now, the number of the disciples is multiplying greatly in Jerusalem. How do you think that's happening? That's happening through people who are just seeing and experiencing the power of the Spirit, the good news of the gospel, and they are multiplying their witness throughout Jerusalem. By the way, remember, they added for five chapters. Verse 1, they're multiplying. Now what are they doing? Multiplying what? Greatly. Wow. Can God do awesome things? certainly can. And look at this finale. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You know who those are, don't you? Those are the ones a few verses earlier saying to Peter and John, stop preaching. We're going to lock you up. Those are the ones who conspired to crucify our Savior days earlier. And now it's not just one or two of them. How many? A great many of the priests are becoming obedient to the faith. Friends, go forth in faith. That work associate who is just so crass and so rough around the edges, so anti-God, he's not beyond the reach of the gospel. And those neighbors in your neighborhood who just drive you crazy and you know they make fun of you for going to church, they're not beyond the reach of the gospel. And even Bill Maher, praise God, uh, someday maybe he'll get saved. That's a big prayer, I know. But they, no one is beyond the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ when it is being lived and demonstrated through his church. And we see an amazing thing happening here as the work of the gospel goes forward. So what do we do? Well, I think we pray for our spiritual leaders, don't we? Pray for the Lord to protect their priorities and and not personally get in the mix of that so that we get them distracted. Uh, They're not the fix-alls. They're not the do-alls. They're not CEOs. They are ones leading us in discovery of truth and the experience of the Spirit and immobilizing us to be the church. And then each one of us says, Lord, make me like those seven and help me serve like those seven. And Lord, give me a profound and persevering uh, commitment and conviction to contribute to the atmosphere of prayer around Bridgeway Church. Because how exciting it is to think of what you could do. Close with a personal illustration that may be of help to you. I uh, was traveling from uh, Sacramento to uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Uh, It's not an Amish conference. It was an evangelical pastor's conference. And as I was flying on the plane, I had all three seats to myself. That's, that's uh, good for reading, bad for witnessing, but I guess it was a reading day. And as I was flying, I just finished a book on leadership, one of many that I read back during that day. And I'll be honest with you, for many years I was a confessed leadershipaholic. You know, every leadership book that came out, came out, came out, came out, came out, I was reading it. As a sidebar, soon I would discover something very refreshing to my soul uh, for years, I read through the Bible every year. I'm not doing it right now because it kind of got legalistic to me, so I'm doing something different. But, but one particular year around that time, I decided I'm going to read through the Bible with one question in mind, and it is, what does God really actually say in His Word about leadership? 
Because I've read all the gurus and I've, I've studied all the books. Uh, but what does God really say? And here's what I discovered. That there was one common denominator of every leader in the Bible. Uh, and I, I almost, really the better, best word is servant in the Bible, right? Every influencer in the Bible. And it was a five-word phrase. The Lord was with him. It's fascinating. Isaac, or, or uh, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham. It was said of David. It was said of Solomon in his early years. It was said of the good judges, the good kings. It was John the Baptist. It was even said of Mary. Halo, blessed one. You're the cutest little Jewish bug we can find. No, that's not what it said. Halo, blessed one. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. It was said of Jesus. And by the way, the last thing Jesus said to his church, all authority has been given to me, right? And lo, you will become more and more clever in your ability to figure things out. No, And lo what? I will be with you always. You see, it is the person, power, presence, and blessing of God's spirit that sets us apart, isn't it? All right, so after that ADD moment, back to my book on the plane. All right, so I finish this book on the plane and I close and I begin to cry. It was just one of those moments. You know how it is when God just surprises you and he speaks to your heart. And I confess with tears coming down my face, looking out that window at 32,000 feet, I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. I grew up on a lake in high school, so maybe that's why this came to mind. I said, Lord, it just seems for so much of my ministry, I've been trying to be a powerboat for Jesus. You know, I got the whole of my seminary education and I got my hand on the throttle of leadership theories and I've got my tank filled with type A personality and man, I'm cutting through the waves and I'm really doing things for God. And I paused and I prayed a prayer that I felt God just inspired me to pray. I said, Lord, would you teach me what it means from this day on to be a simple sailboat? Just a piece of wood and a stick and a sheet. Because, you know, friends, a simple sailboat's dead in the water unless what? Unless the wind blows. And a powerboat brings glory to its own mechanisms and abilities, but a a sailboat glorifies the mystery of an unseen force, doesn't it? And Jesus said, you don't know where the wind's coming from, where it's going, but hang on for the ride. And from that day on, something changed in my heart. And it's a daily decision. But friends, as we look around at Bridgeway, there are so many wonderful things that are going on, and it would be easy for us to to just ride in the momentum of these things. And we have so many tools. All of us in America do these day this day and age. There's nothing wrong with tools, but there's a difference between using the tools and depending on the tools. And the heart that I know your leaders want you to have, and I know they desire to have and continue to pursue, is that God would do something so inexplicable, so supernatural in all of our lives, through the power of his word, the sufficiency of his spirit in an atmosphere of prayer that people would just say, wow, God is truly among them. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your good hand of providence in what you are accomplishing in this wonderful church. God, my heart just is so overjoyed in the sense of your handprint on this church. And Lord, what was so embryonic and struggled in those early days now has become a wonderful family of God poised to reach this community increasingly for the gospel. 
But Lord, we, uh, we can't do it ourselves, so we choose weakness today. We choose reliance upon you. Uh, we choose to say to you once again, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, we just declare that the Holy Spirit is still the how-to of everything we're doing now and everything we will do. And Lord, to demonstrate that in the depths of our hearts, we seek you. We seek your power. We rely upon you through intimate communion. Thank you for the price that was paid for the privilege of prayer through Jesus Christ on the cross. And Lord, today, as we have already seen in this text, the power of that gospel to transform lives, we would pause this morning. And even for those sitting in this room who have never come to understand the saving power of the gospel, may you draw them into that understanding today by your grace. May they recognize their sinfulness that separates them from you. May they recognize that there's nothing they can do to fix themselves. But may they recognize that you and your loving grace sent your son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves by paying the penalty for that sin that has separated us, and by making a way through his sacrifice to the privilege and gift of eternal life. May there be conversations that would occur this morning wherein people would recognize an opportunity to share Christ. May there be the moment, even this morning, even now, when individuals far from you would open their heart to the good news of Jesus and be born again by the power of your spirit and through the authority of your gospel, through repentance and faith. And Lord, for those of us who know you, we join Paul in saying that we may know you more and that we may demonstrate your life for the sake of those who so desperately need to be touched by the gospel. Bless Pastor Lance as he returns in these days. Russ and the team here, thank you for the privilege of partnering together. and We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.